Hello, welcome to the October 10th The Nutritionist webinar. I'm Marianne Fessenden from AMTS and your English language host. This monthly webinar series is dedicated to providing technical talks from internationally recognized educators for listeners around the world. Paula Torillo from Cordoba, Argentina translates and hosts a Spanish language webinar. Tom Long from Hemingway in China will be hosting in Mandarin. Because we are running this webinar at two times, we have pre-recorded the presentation for our presenter's convenience. He will join us for the live question period, immediately followed by the presentation. Listeners can submit queries through me in the morning webinar and me, Paula, or Tom in the evening webinar. Later, a complete recording of archived webinars as well as a question and answer session for each will be available on the AMTS website. For those of you who would listen to the presentations while driving, we have, in, we have converted the videos to MP3 files that can be downloaded to your device for offline listening. Those podcasts can be found at the Ag Model Systems website under Resources and under the Webinars tab. This month, we are pleased to host Dr. Trevor DeVries, an Associate Professor of Animal Science at the University of Guelph. Dr. DeVries grew up in British Columbia, where he, his frequent visits to his uncle's dairy stimulated his abiding interest in dairy cattle. He received his BS, MS, and PhD from the University of British Columbia. At the University of Guelph, his research focuses on identifying factors that influence the development of dairy cattle behavior patterns and the physiological consequences of those behaviors. With his research, he is striving to develop best practices for nutrition, housing, and management that can promote healthy behaviors in dairy cattle for better health, production, and welfare of those animals. Trevor serves as the Canada Research Canada Re Search Chair in Dairy Cattle Behavior and Welfare. Dr. DeVries recorded his talk last week to enable his broadcast twice today, once at 9 o'clock in the morning and at 6 o'clock this afternoon. Trevor will be with us for the live question period. For our audience, if you have questions during the presentation, please type them in the chat or Q&A window. Let us now begin the presentation. Well, thank you very much, Marianne, for the introduction and for the opportunity to present today in this webinar for AMTS. It's a pleasure to speak about this topic area of using knowledge of dairy cow eating behavior to optimize nutritional management. And what I hope to do uh, in today's webinar is to give a bit of background about why eating behavior is important to consider and then some practical take-homes as far as how we use that knowledge then to influence dietary formulation and the management of those diets. First question that comes to mind when thinking about the eating behavior of dairy cows is obviously why, and, and why is it important? And at its core, the most fundamental reason why it's important for us to consider the feeding behavior of dairy cows is the fact that changes in feed consumption are mediated through any change in feeding behavior. And this is particularly important for a dairy cow who, at the end of the day, the goal is to optimize and maximize production. And the amount of milk produced is going to be limited by the amount of nutrients consumed. And so if we want the cow to consume more nutrients, we need her 
to change some aspect of our eating behavior. And I always like to use the schematic that uh, you see on the screen here, which shows that dry matter intake level is really a function of different aspects of the eating behavior of the cow. For example, the amount of feed consumed is really a product of the size of meals and the frequency of meals that cows have per day. Same thing goes with the time course of eating. So how much time the cow spends at the feed bunk multiplied by the speed at which the cow consumes her feed is going to be related to the amount of feed consumed. And so if we want dairy cows to consume more feed, we need to think about ways in which that cow is going to change her behavior in order to accomplish that. So cows would need to either have more meals per day, larger meals, or some combination of those two things. Same thing with the time course of eating, either spend more time eating, eat faster, or some combination of those factors. Question then comes to mind is, what is most important if we're going to promote high intake in our high production cows, what is the most important from a behavioral standpoint? And we've tried to answer that question in a recent study that we published. This is a multi-study analysis that we completed where we took data from a variety of studies where we had behavioral data on dairy cows and associated that with production outcomes, including things like dry matter intake. And what we found in our prediction model was that dry matter intake was most positively associated with the amount of time that cows are spending at the feed bunk, as well as the number of meals that they were having per day. While intake was also associated with the rate of feed consumption and the size of those meals, those variables did not explain the same amount of variation in dry matter intake as, say, feeding time and meal frequency. And you can see an example in the figure here where we have the amount of feeding time here on the x-axis regressed against the uh, feed consumption level of those cows on the y here. And what you can see is that for our highest intake cows, those are also the cows that are spending four, five, six hours of the day at the feed bunk. And even though it's not a perfect relationship, we're explaining about 30, 35% of the variability in that dry matter intake based on how much time those cows are spending at the bunk in and amongst other things that can influence that uh, variability. And so that suggests to us that anything that may potentially limit those cows from getting to that feed bunk across the day may have a negative impact on their ability to optimize and maximize their dry matter intake. And so we need to think of those things that are going to promote more time at the feed bunk, more meals more frequently throughout the day from a dietary formulation standpoint and also from a feeding management standpoint, which are going to uh, promote that type of behavior. In addition to the impact on overall intake, we also know that how the dairy cow eats her feed may have an impact on how she actually digests that feed and what goes on in the rumen of the cow. And I like to explain that by contrasting what you see in the videos on the screen in terms of a cow grazing versus a cow eating TMR in a feed bunk. The cow on the left grazing is doing something that's very natural for the cow as far as that's what that cow is designed to do. She's a grazing ruminant designed to spend 8 to 10 hours per day grazing, eating relatively slowly, 
a fairly consistent product across the daytime and then spending most of the evening and nighttime uh, resting and ruminating on that feed. We contrast that to the right where we have a cow in a more intensive feeding situation consuming a TMR, a total mixed ration. We see that that cow is eating much quicker and in fact she can probably eat twice as much dry matter in about a third of the amount of time than that cow who's grazing. And not only is she eating that much faster, but the composition of what she's consuming is also very much different, containing a high proportion of highly digestible carbohydrates. And the speed at which those highly fermentable, highly digestible uh, feed components hits the rumen is going to influence the speed at which those get digested and the accumulation of volatile fatty acids that will occur in the rumen. And as a result of that, we see an impact on rumen fermentation patterns. And a good way to visualize that is to look at, um, in this case, a pH trace of a cow, where we see uh, variability across the day in terms of rumen pH, whereby you see individual drops in rumen pH at certain time points of the day. And each of those drops really represents an individual meal that that cow has had. And I can put a line here at a pH of 6 and show that there's four distinct time periods of the day where that cow's pH dropped. And as pH trickles down, as it gets below, say, that threshold of 6, we know that things start getting compromised in the rumen environment, like fiber digestibility starts to decrease. And with that, then the rumen slows down, passage rate slows down, and as a result, cows won't be able to consume as much feed. In association with that, we also know then that decreases in pH within the day are potentially going to be linked to things like milk fat depression. And that milk fat depression then is obviously uh, a negative impact on the overall productivity level of that cow. And so it shouldn't surprise us then that we see associations between, say, things like meal frequency and milk fat content of cows. And this is data just pulled out from one of our studies from a few years ago. Again, showing a relationship, not perfect, but um, indicating a nice trend as far as those cows having more meals per day tending to have greater milk fat content, likely as a result of a stabilization in the rumen fermentation of those cows, contributing to stable rumen pH, better biohydrogenation, and less risk of milk fat depression. We know that in addition to how dairy cows eat their feed, uh, it's also important to consider what they consume from their feed. And what I mean by that is what you see in the video here is this cow sorting her diet. And dairy cows sort their diet for a variety of reasons. Uh, most likely and most commonly trying to sort for those tastiest particles within that diet. At the end of the day, despite our intention of providing a mixed ration that's going to minimize that selectivity, cows end up consuming a diet that's quite different from that, which is formulated for them, typically consuming less fiber than predicted, more highly fermentable carbohydrates. And as a result of that, it shouldn't surprise us then that we see effects of that, not only from a rumen health standpoint, but also from an overall production standpoint in these cows. A good example of that is some older data from about 10 years ago where we showed 
an association between the amount of sorting that cows do of long particles. So the particles that sit on top of, of the shaker box screen here and the amount of sorting um, or, and the rumen pH of those cows. And so if you look at the x-axis here, we see sorting where 100% basically means that cows are eating exactly what's put in front of them. Anything under 100% means cows are sorting against those particles. And in this case here, we have the individual sorting activity of cows regressed against their maximum rumen pH. And very interestingly, we see that about 50% of the variability in that maximum rumen pH in the case of this study is explained by the sorting activity of those cows, whereby those cows that are sorting more, so going right to left here, are experiencing lower rumen pH, likely as a result of, say, consuming less effective fiber, consuming more or a higher proportion of highly uh, fermentable carbohydrates, and therefore experiencing greater acid loads, decreased buffering capacity, and, and more accumulation of that acid, say, within the rumen. And so it shouldn't surprise us then, too, that as a result of that type of sorting, we're going to see related productive implications for that cow. And what you see here is results of a more recent study as well, where we were looking at the association of that type of sorting behavior and productive outcomes in cows. And on the top left here, what you see is an association between the amount of uh, sorting of those long particles again, where 100% means no sorting and anything under 100% means sorting against, and the milk fat content of these cows. And what we found in this study is an association whereby those cows that had lower milk fat were also the cows that were the ones who were sorting their diet more, again, against those long fibrous particles of that diet, fitting with the previous data that I showed you, suggesting that as cows tend to sort more against those long fibrous particles, there are a greater risk of subacute rumelacidosis, milk fat depression that goes with that, and explains this relationship that we see here. The other thing that's interesting that we found in this study is that it wasn't only milk fat that we saw an association for, we also saw an association with milk protein. And so same thing if we look from right to left here, as these cows sort more, their milk protein content goes down. And again, this may not be totally intuitive, but if you think of the impact that feed sorting has in terms of disrupting what the cow is consuming relative to what we predict that cow is to consume, this can be easily explained. We formulate diets very precisely we're formally down to the amino acid. And if cows don't consume those diets exactly as formulated, it shouldn't surprise us then that there's resultant effects on rumen fermentation and productive outcomes, like the optimization of microbial protein production and, and milk protein content as a result. And so this relationship here, just like milk fat, is likely explained by variation in terms of what those cows are consuming relative to what we would predict they would consume based on the diet put in front of them. Another really neat example is some very recent data that comes from our lab as well, which is hopefully going to be published in the next few months in the Journal of Dairy Science, whereby we are looking at cows in early lactation and 
what we did is over the first four weeks of lactation, we classified cows as being either at low risk or high risk of ruminal acidosis, and then looked at differences in behavior and production between those animals. And what we saw was that over the first four weeks of lactation, those cows classified as low risk versus high risk based on the amount of time that they were spending with depressed reticulorumin pH. Uh, what we saw was similar dry matter intake levels between those two groups of cows. When we looked at their production in terms of milk yield, again, over the first 28 days of lactation, what we saw is a tendency for those high-risk cows to produce less milk than those low-risk cows. When we look at milk fat content, we don't see any significant difference between those two groups of animals. However, as you can see there, there's quite a bit of variability and what I would view as a fairly strong numerical difference between those groups of animals. And as a result of that numerical difference and the tendency for a difference in milk yield, when we corrected that milk for fat content and we looked at 4% fat corrected milk, we do actually see a significant difference in production between our high risk for acidosis cows and our low risk cows. And what's interesting is that we see this production difference, even though dry matter intake levels are similar between these cows, and I failed to mention that these cows were all consuming an isonutritional diet. And so really at the end of the day, we had to look for any other difference that might be uh, between these groups of cows. And really the only difference that we could discover in our analysis was a difference in feed sorting between these two groups of cows, where by our high-risk cows, we're doing a lot more sorting of their diet versus those low-risk cows. And so again, particularly in that post-fresh period where we know cows are at increased risk of experiencing ruminal acidosis, this is a critical time point for us to think about ways that we need to mitigate that risk because we know that if they do have that risk and their behavior then feeds into that, we're going to even further increase that risk of acidosis during that time period. Not only does feed sorting have an impact on the individual cow, but also is going to have an impact when uh, cows are consuming feed within a group. And, and what we know is that when cows sort their feed in the bunk, it changes the quality and composition of that feed across the day. And this is just an example from an older study, just tracking the NDF content of the feed across the day. As cows sort that feed, and they're particularly sorting against fiber, what you see is this curvilinear increase in the amount of NDF in the bunk, reflective of those cows selecting against that fiber that's in the bunk. And what this means is that that's going to create variation in terms of what cows consume across the day, not only within cows, but particularly across cows. And so if you have situations, say, of poor bunk access, where there's competition for feed access due to, say, overcrowding of that feed bunk, you're going to end up with cows choosing or needing to consume feed at different times of the day. And as a result of that sorting, ending up consuming very different diets between cows. And as a result of that, it shouldn't surprise us then that we see at a herd level as well a significant impact of that kind of feed sorting. And I just thought I would highlight some field data that we collected a number of years ago where we surveyed a number of farms in Canada, freestall uh, 
dairy herds that were all feeding a TMR, looking at sorting at a herd level and a group level, and then correlating that to uh, productive outcomes on those farms. And what you see, again, looking at sorting of long particles on these herds, we see anywhere from over 10% refusal to almost zero uh, refusal of those long particles, so very little sorting uh, in those herds. What was interesting is that in that range of just over 10% uh, in terms of refusal of long particles across the various herds that we looked at, we saw an association with herd level production. And what we found was that every 2% refusal of long particles across that range was associated with about 0.9 kilos less fat-corrected milk. And so that translates basically into a difference of about 4.5 kilograms of milk production per cow per day at a herd average level between kind of our high-sorting herds and our low-sorting herds, uh, which is equivalent to about 10 pounds difference in milk production. And that's a significant amount of milk loss that we can simply predict based on the eating behavior of those cows, taking into account differences in nutrition and nutritional management uh, on those farms. And so, again, anything that we can do to minimize the risk of that behavior is going to go a long way in terms of allowing cows to optimize their production and really meet the production targets that we have on our herds. The other thing that we need to consider is the post-ingestive feeding behavior of the dairy cow. And what I'm referring to, as you see in the video here, is that rumination behavior, which a cow does. And we know rumination is inherently a important behavior for that dairy cow. She'll spend 8 to 10 hours of her day ruminating, so nearly twice the amount of time she spends eating or more, she's going to spend ruminating that feed. And that rumination really is... Uh, being performed to keep that rumen working and healthy. And we know that part of that is to help buffer the rumen, uh, improve saliva production while chewing so that that's going to help buffer the rumen. And probably even more importantly, what rumination does is reduce the size of feed particles, increase surface area, which increases microbial attachment, the speed of digestion. And again, we know that the rate of digestion of feed within the rumen is then going to influence the passage rate and it's going to influence when that cow is going to feed again. And so when she's hungry again, it's going to be related to how fast she can clear that feed from her rumen. And so the more time that cow can devote to rumination, the more time uh, potentially or the faster she can clear that feed and the more feed she can consume. And so it shouldn't surprise us then that we see some associations between, say, uh, particularly in our high production cows, the amount of time cows spend ruminating and the level of dry matter consumption of those cows. And again, this is data from that study I described earlier, whereby here we see, again, a positive relationship, not steep, but again, thinking of our highest intake cows, these are all the ones that are going to be spending at least eight, nine, ten hours of the day at uh, or ruminating their feed. And so what that means for us is that we need to think of, again, not only dietary factors which are going to influence that ability of cows to maximize their chewing behavior, but also other things. We know that 
rumination is inherently tied to the lying behavior of cows, and they're going to do most of that behavior while they're resting. And so anything that's going to limit the comfort of cows, whether that be stress, whether uh, environmental stress, social stress, poor stall design, poor bedding comfort, all those things which we know may limit the amount of time that cows may want to lie down, may also then have a trickle-down effect in terms of limiting the amount of time that cows, say, spend ruminating, and that then may have a negative impact on the intake level and production of those cows. And I wanted to also highlight the fact that this is probably most important during the early postpartum period. This is some data that uh, comes out of a study that we published earlier this year where we see a strong uh, relationship between the amount of time that cows spend ruminating and their milk yield. And this is for data collected on cows in the first four weeks of lactation, where we see, in this case, nearly 50% of the variation in milk yield being related to the amount of time that these cows are spending ruminating. And this is really the only time period where we see such a strong relationship. If we look at peak, mid, and late lactation, we don't really see that same relationship between rumination time and, say, milk yield. It's during this early postpartum period where we see milk yield increasing very rapidly, dry matter intake doing the same, as well as rumination time. And so, again, anything that may negatively impact the ability of those cows uh, to ruminate and maximize the amount of time that they're spending ruminating is potentially going to have a limiting effect on their intake and their production, as you see here in this figure. Now, that really sets the groundwork for why the behavior of dairy cows, particularly eating behavior, is important from a health, uh, rumen health, and a production standpoint. The question then becomes is what do we do with this information and how do we use it from a nutritional management standpoint? There's a couple things that we need to consider. First and foremost, when we think of diets and diet formulation, they should be formulated to encourage that good eating behavior so consumption of small, frequent meals, difficult to sort and, and stimulate rumination. And we could spend a lot of time uh, on this topic area. In the interest of time, I'm going to boil this down to a, a couple simple things. And, and first and foremost, it really comes down to proper forage management. And we know that forage uh, is key from a number of different perspectives. And particularly from an eating behavior standpoint, we know that forage uh, uh, is going to have a significant impact on how those cows eat and what they consume and, and what happens in the rumen after that from a, from an eating behavior standpoint. And I'd like to key in on three things, uh, the quantity of forage, the type of forage, and, uh, particle size. Starting with the quantity of forage in the ration, one of the things that we know and, and we see consistently in the literature is that lower forage diets as opposed to, say, diets that are higher in overall forage content are going to be more prone to what I would coin as poor eating patterns. And so the lesser amount of forage there is in the ration, the greater amount of concentrate on a ratio basis, we're going to see cows consume their feed faster, have larger meal sizes, and they're going to be more prone to sorting those diets 
against the longest ration, against the fiber that's within those diets. And so if we're in areas where uh, we have limited forage availability or um, uh, poor quality forages where we may end up having to use a greater proportion of non-forages and concentrates within our diets, we're going to have to think about beyond the diet itself how we can manage those diets, and I'll describe this a little later on, how we can really manage those diets to optimize the eating behavior of the cows to minimize, say, that risk of poor eating patterns relating to poor rumen health and production. Similarly, we know forage type is going to influence the eating behavior. Uh, specifically, we know that dry forages are more easily sorted than, say, wet forages like silage. And so this then also has implications. So again, if we're in an area where we're limited to the amount of fermented feeds that we have and fermented uh, forages, and we're stuck to using a high proportion of dry forages, hay, even in some cases uh, straw and other poor quality forages, we're going to have to think about ways to manage that forage as well as the diet as a whole to optimize the eating behavior of those animals. And part of that is thinking about the particle size of those forages. We know that those forages that are longer and have larger particle sizes are going to result in uh, greater diet selection. And so we have a host of literature um, from fermented feeds to dry forages, hays and straws, etc., that uh, the longer the particle size is, the easier it is for those cows to discern those particle sizes and select against them and uh, result in cows consuming a diet different than expected and having negative consequences of that. And I want to make the point that that behavior uh, can be influenced by quite small differences, even in forage particle size. And I want to highlight the results of a recent study that we conducted and published earlier this year. And this was a study that we did looking at the influence of the chop length of straw in diets fed to fresh cows. So over the first 28 days of lactation, we fed uh, cows either what we called a long straw diet or a short straw diet, where the diets were isonutritional, the only difference being the chop length of the straw, where we had short straw being at about two to three centimeters or about an inch in length, or our long straw diet, not that much longer, actually only five to eight centimeters or about two to three um, inches in length, uh, but a difference between uh, the, the total amount or total length of those straws in those diets fed. What you can see here is that over those first 28 days, when we look at the dry matter intake level, we see uh, when we looked at the modeled response of these cows in this trial, we see very similar dry matter intake levels, so really no difference there. Where this got interesting is when we looked at the amount of time that cows were spending with depressed reticulorumen pH. And so using indwelling uh, rumen pH monitors that were likely sitting mostly in the reticulum, we looked at the amount of time that they're spending with time uh, with pH less than 5.8. And what you see here, looking at the model of the response, is that those animals on the long diet, particularly here between about a week 
and two weeks into lactation, we're spending nearly 50% or more time with depressed rumen pH. And this is interesting, again, because these cows were eating diets that were, on paper, of the same nutritional value, same amount of forage, etc. the only thing difference being the particle size of that straw. And given the fact that they ate the same amount, the only thing that we could ascribe this difference in rumen pH to was the amount of sorting that was occurring on these diets, whereby those animals on the long straw treatment were exhibiting significantly more or greater uh, extent of sorting against those long particles versus those animals on the short straw treatment. And as a result of this, what we saw that was also interesting was a difference in milk production over those first 28 days in milk. What you see here is the modeled uh, milk re- production response of those cows. And when we analyzed this, what we noted was that those cows on the short treatment tended to produce about 76 kilograms more milk over the first 28 days in milk. There's quite a bit of day-to-day variation in that production over that time period, but 76 kilos of cumulative milk production is something that we can definitely um, uh, know is, is going to be important for us to be able to capture during that time period, simply, again, based on, say, differences in uh, eating behavior. And so anything that we can do, even though these are very small differences in uh, straw particle size, is having a big influence on the behavior of the cows and having a big impact on the uh, productive outcome of these cows in, in this study. In addition to more macro dietary factors, we can also think of things at a micro level. And one of the things that we know from the literature is that if we can keep the rumen stable, not only from uh, a dietary ingredient, uh, a macro dietary ingredient standpoint, but also from a, a micro standpoint, we know that that can have a positive influence on the eating behavior of cows. And, and what uh, I have on the screen is, is a, a collection of studies whereby they've looked at different feed additives that we know have a positive impact on the rumen environment, in particular in terms of stabilizing the rumen environment. But what's unique about all these studies is that in each of these studies, they show that not only do these different products have a positive impact on the rumen environment, but also on the eating behavior of the cows. And so it almost becomes a cyclical thing whereby if we can stabilize the rumen environment, then the eating patterns of the cows become stabilized as well. And those stabilized eating patterns then should also cycle back and promote a more stable rumen environment. And just highlighting an example of that, one of the studies that I was involved with a few years ago, we looked at supplementing high production cows with a live yeast product. And what you see is that these cows that were supplemented with the uh, live yeast product at the end of the day had more meals per day and so uh, consumed their feed in more meals that were also of smaller size. And so more meals, smaller meals, consume the same amount of dry matter across the day, but as a result of that improvement in eating behavior pattern, we see, and in the end of that trial, we saw greater rumination in milk fat in those cows. 
which would be, again, indicative of an improvement in the rumen environment and the stability of the rumen of those cows. Besides the dietary formulation, another factor that we know may have an impact on uh, feed consumption and particularly diet selection and sorting in cows is uh, TMR moisture content. Um, there's some older work to suggest that uh, dry rations, so those uh, total mixed rations that are dry, um, particularly those that contain a high proportion of uh, dry forages, are going to benefit from added moisture. And there's been a couple studies over the years, particularly looking at rations that are, say, over 60% dry matter, and adding moisture, adding water to those rations in order to reduce the amount of sorting that we see of those rations. And in some cases, we see uh, improvements in production, again, related to that stability of the rumen and improvements in uh, total uh, fiber consumption related to what we predict, uh, as indicated here in this older study of Wisconsin where they showed an improvement in milk fat. And what's interesting is uh, even though this practice of adding water to rations to reducing sorting is quite ubiquitous within the industry. There's, uh, beyond these couple studies, there's not a whole lot of support for this practice. In fact, uh, we have some evidence to suggest that uh, we can actually experience the opposite effect, uh, particularly when we add water to uh, much wetter rations. And what I've highlighted on the screen is two studies that my group did uh, again, a number of years ago where we started with diets that were uh, reasonably high in moisture to start with, so kind of in the mid-50% uh, range uh, of, of dry matter and bringing the moisture content down into the uh, uh, 40s as far as uh, dry matter content goes. And, and what was unique about these diets was that these diets contained only fermented forages, corn silage, alfalfa, haylage, with no dry forage uh, in these. And what we found was that as we lowered the dry matter content through adding water, we actually found that those diets were sorted more as we added more water to those. And what was interesting was we found that those diets also limited total dry matter intake. And so there's probably uh, a couple reasons for that. Not only did those uh, higher moisture diets become bulkier. And as a result of that, we actually saw as fed consumptions even higher, but because of the moisture content, dry matter intake was actually lower. And as a result of that, um, uh, we also saw, uh, which was interesting in our second study when we looked at this, is that those diets also became more prone to uh, heating up and, and potentially spoiling. And so what we saw was that the high moisture content of those diets combined with high ambient temperatures as well as high humidity resulted in a greater increase in feed temperature, which we know can increase the risk of feed bunk spoilage. Um, and that potentially limited uh, or contributed to that greater uh, sorting against the uh, long particles in those diets, as well as the uh, limitation of total intake in those cows. And so from a practical perspective, uh, kind of my rule of thumb regarding this is um, uh, 
to answer the question of when we should be adding water to TMR, when we're thinking of very dry rations, particularly those over, say, 55% dry matter, uh, especially when we have dry forages in those rations, uh, we can probably add no wa- water, no problem, uh, and expect to see an improvement in ration co- cohesiveness and a reduction in sorting. When we've got wetter rations, say with less than 55% dry matter to start with, particularly those with no dry forage, if we notice sorting as an issue, um, I would recommend adding water. But monitor what happens and, and really monitor total dry matter intake levels of the cows to make sure that we're not actually limiting total dry matter consumption as well as we're not increasing the risk of more sorting, particularly in the summertime in, in hot uh, temperatures. The other thing that we can do is consider the use of other feed uh, supplements, liquid feeds. Uh, uh, things like molasses-based liquid feeds have been shown uh, in research by, say, our group and others to improve, again, ration cohesiveness and reduce the amount of sorting that cows will uh, engage in across the day, which is, again, going to promote a more consistent product that gets consumed. Besides the ration itself, the other thing that we can do is not only make sure that those cows receive a good diet that's going to promote good eating patterns and eating behavior, but also make sure that we stimulate them to access their feed throughout the day and express those good eating patterns as I described earlier in my uh, webinar here. And so the question then is, how do we stimulate cows to access their feed? Or maybe a better question is, when do cows eat during the day? And probably the simplest answer to that is that cows are going to eat when they're hungry. And obviously, the hunger of the cow is going to be related in a large degree to what that cow consumes, how fast that cow digests her feed, how quickly that rumen empties and the cow feels hungry as a result of that, as well as how quickly that animal clears the metabolites in her blood. That's also going to contribute to her uh, hunger level and her quicker return to eating. But beyond that, we also know that cows are going to not only be stimulated by that hunger internally, but also there's going to be external factors which are going to stimulate that cow to eat at different times of the day. And we know that uh, for cows that are uh, housed, particularly cows that are housed intensively inside fed TMRs, that their feed consumption behavior is going to be high related to the management of that feeding in the day. We also know that they're going to eat around other management events like the return from the milking parlor. However, uh, collectively, a number of studies we've conducted over the years would suggest that the, the primary influence on the eating behavior of cows uh, kept uh, particularly indoors fed TMR is going to be when that feed gets delivered to those cows. And so we can think about then the timing and frequency of that feed delivery as it potentially may impact the eating patterns of cows. And we have, again, pretty good uh, empirical data to suggest that um, uh, when we're feeding, say, TMRs, the more often we do that per, throughout the day, 
um, as we move from, say, once a day to twice a day or three times or more times of feed delivery per day, what we see is a change in the intake patterns of those cows where we see cows spending more time at the bunkers across the day, having more meals per day. And as a result of that, what we see is a more even distribution in the eating behavior and bunk occupancy of those cows across the day. Cows don't necessarily always eat more when we feed them, say, more often across the day. But what you end up with is cows spreading out that feed consumption more evenly across the day, promoting a more consistent input into of nutrients into that rumen um, across a 24-hour period. And that's also enhanced by the fact that in addition to that change in kind of meal patterning and, and time consumption, uh, time pattern of consumption, we also know that the frequency by which feed gets delivered to the cows is going to influence how much sorting cows can do. And this just shows, again, in an older study showing how uh, simply feeding cows twice a day versus once a day will result in a reduction in the amount of feed sorting across the day. And in addition to uh, this more controlled study, there's a variety of field studies to support that, to suggest that at a herd level, we see less overall sorting of feed as we drop it uh, more often across the day. And this combined with that behavior response means that cows end up consuming a more consistent ration across the day, which as we described earlier, should then have positive impacts on the uh, rumen environment in terms of the stability of that and fermentation patterns. And, and as a result, we should see uh, production-related outcomes uh, to that. And, and one example of that, uh, which is kind of neat again from a field study perspective is uh, this work that comes out of uh, Cornell University and the Minor Institute in New York, where they've been looking at milk fatty acid composition, uh, particularly bulk tank uh, milk fatty acid composition, and breaking that fatty acid composition down into uh, de novo fatty acids versus uh, mixed and, and preformed fatty acids. And what they've noted in that research is that we know that the uh, de novo fatty acid content in milk is going to be highly related to uh, milk fat content, um, as we know that higher de novo fatty acid content is a good indicator of a stable rumen environment where we've got good fermentation, low risk of or a low amount of, say, altered biohydrogenation uh, and, and, and milk fat, say, depressive type effects. And so um, what, we, what we know is that these herds with high de novo fatty acid content are also tending to have higher milk fat. And, and what these researchers found was that those herds that had de no, high de novo fatty acid content tended to be about five times more likely to feed twice a day versus once per day, um, supporting that argument that simply by getting feed more often in front of cows, we're going to stabilize their eating patterns, which is going to translate into a stabilization of the rumen, as well as um, uh, a decreased risk then of, say, things like milk fat depression. This is also supported by uh, some 
previous research that comes out of Penn State where they showed very similarly for cows, in this case, uh, milked four times a day and either fed once a day here in the black line or fed four times a day at each of those uh, milking times in the dash line here, we see a difference in milk fat content of anywhere from 0.22 to 0.45 percentage points across the day increase in, in milk fat uh, content for those cows that were fed four times a day. And again, these are cows consuming the same diet. Um, and really the only difference here is the impact that that feed delivery is having on the feed uh, consumption patterns, translating into an impact on the rumen environment and a decreased risk of that milk fat depression. And, and one of the things that you can see in this data is the diet, the basal diet that's being fed uh, is resulting in, uh, particularly once a day, is resulting in a fairly low milk fat. And so the, the benefits of, say, increasing feed delivery frequency from a rumen health and milk fat perspective is going to be even greater when feeding diets that are, say, putting cows at, say, higher risk of um, things like uh, acidosis, uh, and, and that may be at certain times of lactation too, like in early lactation where we know cows may be at higher risk. Another thing for us to consider is um, how we're maximizing those eating opportunities across the day. For many producers, it may be difficult to increase the frequency by which feed gets delivered uh, beyond sometimes even once a day or twice a day. And so the question is, can we also maximize eating opportunities by, say, staggering management events in the barn, knowing that dairy cows will eat, say, after they've been milked, but also after, say, when feed is delivered. And we have a good example of that of a study we did a few years ago where we either fed cows uh, in the gray line here at milking time, so cows were milked three times a day at each of these uh, arrow points, and we fed them twice a day, either here at 2 o'clock in the afternoon after the bunk had been cleaned out, and again the next morning here around 7 o'clock. Or in the blue line, we push that feed delivery away from milking time about three and a half hours ahead. So in this case, feeding them at 5.30 in the afternoon or 10.30 in the morning the next day. And what you see is actually a slight stabilization in their intake pattern. And you can't see that in this graph directly, but what we saw was an improvement in meal frequency in these cows. These cows had more meals per day when we move feed delivery away from milking, as well as they consume their feed at a slower pace. And as a result of that, what we saw was an improvement in overall feed efficiency in these cows. And so this is just another opportunity, thinking about ways of getting cows to spread out their feed consumption across the day in order to have a positive impact on, again, the rumen environment, which may translate then into improvements in fermentation and even improvements in the efficiency by which cows uh, digest their feed. I want to make the point that in addition to how we manage, say, the timing and frequency of feeding, we also need to simply ensure that feed is present when cows uh, go to the feed bunk. And I always like to use the example of the picture you see here and this cow who's standing here looking at me as I take her picture. And this cow here 
came to the feed bunk to do something, and that's not stand here and take her picture. It's really to eat that feed, and the feed that she wants to consume is that feed that's here. And if that feed doesn't get pushed up to her very quickly, this cow is going to do one of two things. Number one, she's going to go lie down, and in that case, we've potentially foregone an eating opportunity for that cow and maybe limited the amount of dry matter intake that that cow is going to consume. Number two, that cow could stand around and wait. And from a time budget perspective, that's not ideal. We want cows, uh, when they're in the barn, to be productive, either eating or lying down and not spending any extraordinary time wasting their time standing on their feet doing nothing. And so our challenge then becomes is to make sure that that feed gets pushed back to those cows as often as possible so that we minimize that risk of that cow coming to that empty bunk. And my rule of thumb there is basically to do that as often as possible. And, and again, it doesn't matter how you do that, whether that's manually, whether that's uh, mechanically uh, with a machine or even an automated feed pusher, so that no matter what time of day it is, there's feed there and that feed is pushed up. And my rule of thumb for producers is always that when we push up feed, that the cows don't react. Because if we push up feed and we see the cows come running to the feed bunk, we know that we're too late. Those cows are hungry and they've been too long without that feed pushed up. And so we need to get that feed back to them uh, uh, more often in that scenario. And this can have a significant impact on the overall time budgets of cows as well. And I always like to uh, use this data to highlight that. This is some data that, again, comes out of a field study that we did in Canada a couple years ago, looking at 41 robotic milk herds where we surveyed different management practices on these farms and related that to some behavior and production outcomes. What we saw is the average frequency of feed push-ups on these herds was eight times per day, ranging from two to 24 times per day. And we saw this peculiar relationship whereby every two extra feed push-ups across this range of two to 24 push-ups was associated with 0.1 hours of extra line duration. Now that doesn't sound like a whole lot, but between our low and high push-up herds, that means that's about an hour difference in total line duration. And so what that tells me is that by simply getting that feed back to those cows more often throughout the day, we're going to minimize the time that cows uh, or, or the risk of cows standing around waiting for that feed and so they can use that time more efficiently to lying down, which then is going to also then have potentially positive impacts on things like their rumination behavior, allowing the cows to be able to do that more, again, feeding back to potentially a hungrier animal and an animal that's going to come back to eat quicker and potentially eat more across the day as well. So with that, that gets me to the end of this uh, webinar, and I just have a couple of quick take-home messages. And, and really the, the overall message is that uh, when thinking about how we feed cows, we need to consider that the, the way that cows eat their feed and, and what they eat from their feed is going to be uh, just as important as the nutritional composition or formulation of that feed in terms of ensuring good cow health efficiency and productivity. And there's, there's two ways that we're going to achieve that primarily. It's going to be through dietary formulation, um, but then 
uh, just as much so is the management of that feed to ensure that not only the cows are going to receive that feed uh, and, and consume it as, as desired, but do so across the day in a manner that's uh, good for them. And so with that, I um, thank you for listening to my webinar today. Thank you once again to AMTS for the invitation to partake in this webinar, and hopefully I can answer questions that you may have uh, on this webinar that um, I've been able to present to you today. Thank you very much. All right. Hopefully you are seeing a picture of our next webinar, which will be Bill Weiss. So first of all, I know Trevor is with us and ready to answer questions. I have a couple written questions. Please continue to add questions to the chat window. Um, Dr. DeVries was really a champion and took all of this on his own as I was traveling last week and was at World Dairy Expo and couldn't sit down and record it with him. So he did it all and all I had to do was produce it and put it up today. Um, I usually have an additional host, Elena Bonfante, usually joins, but she had an unavoidable conflict. So we're going to just have um, me asking questions. So first of all, thank you again, Trevor, for, for the presentation. Um, we will go ahead and start asking questions shortly. I want to remind you that next month we will have Dr. William Weiss, professor in animal science at The Ohio State University joining us. While he has been at The Ohio State, because he is going to be retiring soon, his focus has been on animal nutrition with an emphasis on vitamins and minerals. Please make sure you join us next time for the webinar. And just a side note for anybody that's in the United States, it does change times. We go back to standard time. So rather than having a 9 a.m. and a 6 p.m. webinar, we move to 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. So this webinar it will be an hour earlier maybe for you, depending on what country you're listening in. Um, I am going to tell you about the Beef Nutritionist. We have decided to cancel it for today. Um, Nicholas DiLorenzo from the University of Florida is directly in the path of Hurricane Michael, which is closing in and looking to be very bad. So we will be rescheduling this webinar. It's a very real possibility. We'll hold the Beef webinar with Nicholas DiLorenzo on um the next webinar date that was the same date that we're having Bill Weiss. So Bill Weiss is going to be joining us November 14th, and I think Nicholas is going to join us at the same time um, uh, at 1 p.m. It would have been very nice because Nicholas's presentation is actually on forage and dry matter intake, and it was going to be a nice tie-in with Trevor's talk this morning about dry matter intake because Nicholas, of course, is working in grazing conditions. So tune back for that. We will probably have a lot of questions in regards to measuring dry matter intake on grazing situations in dairy, even though he's going to be speaking primarily as a beef nutritionist. But um, I have plans to make some people attend to ask questions. And again, I want to thank my co-hosts for this webinar series of The Nutritionist. In the mornings, we have AMTS and Dairy Innovations Italia, um, Elena Bonfante joining, except for this morning. In the afternoons, um, Paula Torillo from 
um, her own webinar series joins us from Argentina and Tom Long from Hemingway in China. We could not do this without the generous help from our sponsors because the webinars take up a lot of my time. Um, we want to thank especially our gold sponsors, Ajinomoto Heartland, Superior Nutrition Through Amino Acids, Makers of Agipro L, and Arm Ammer Animal Health, makers of cattle feed ingredients that optimize dairy cow health. Our silver sponsors are Dairyland Laboratories, Virtus, makers of Strata with EPA, DHA, Omega-3s, and Prequil with Omega-6s. Cumberland Valley Analytical Services, Kemen, featuring USA Lysine, Dairy One Forage Laboratory, R&D Life Scientists, AB Vista, and our bronze sponsors, finally, are Amino Max, Purdue Agribusiness, Jeffo, Quality Liquid Feeds, Adiseo, Origination Inc., and Novita, makers of Nova Meal. I am going to open the floor up for questions. I have a few. If you have additional questions, please write them in. And I know I can hear Trevor that he is, <laughs> he is ready to speak. So, Trevor, thank you for joining us. Yeah, no problem. I hope it's no problem because I you're moving today, so I am actually I'm, I'm in the middle of a house move right now. So yes, yeah, so we'll we will hopefully um, have a few questions to make it worth your while, but not so many that you spend a lot of time, and then we'll tie you up again this afternoon. Um, so I'm going to start with my first question. That is from um, Weeb Fucking, and I'm sorry if I've mispronounced your name. He says, what are your thoughts and experiences with the compact feeding concept from Denmark? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, for those that aren't familiar um, with the compact feeding um, method that originated in Denmark, um, it, the, the, the basis of that concept is actually – um, take a TMR uh, and 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 really chop it as fine as possible and and soak it actually um, uh, overnight um, and that's what I've seen uh, practically. Uh, so adding a lot of water, getting the dry matter content very low, um, and so it's almost kind of like uh, yeah, quite a dense, almost like a smoothie for the cows in terms of the particle size is is, is nearly. Um, uh, all very small and hom homogenous. Um, I'll just make a couple quick points. Uh, one is actually, and, and that's my caution on it, is th there's not a lot of empirical data to support it. There, there has been a couple uh, metabolic studies showing potentially some of the benefits. Um, anecdotally, I hear that, yeah, it's, it's, it's great because the cows can't sort the diet and, 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 um, uh, and as a result, they're going to they're be eating something much more consistent. Um, whether or not we can apply that concept to, say, diets uh, in all places in the world is, is a bit more difficult to say. Uh, a lot of the diets that this has worked with well uh, used in Northern Europe are um, higher in, in uh, forage contents, uh, than a lot of the diets, uh, say, fed here in North America, as well as in other places, uh, contain a lot of dry forage. And, and because of that, the water uh, soaks into the dry forage, and that's part of the concept there, and they can chop those dry forages very fine and small. Whether or not that works for diets with uh, 
a lot of wet forage as a high proportion of corn silage, uh, say alfalfa haylage. Uh, it remains to be seen, and, and I'd caution people on that because what we've seen in uh, in studies, uh, as described, is that uh, when we've got already high moisture diets containing a high proportion of fermented feeds, uh, adding water to those diets to bring the dry matter content particularly really low into the low 40s, and and in the compact feeding system, it's even sometimes lower than that. Um, you 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 do run the risk of potentially uh, causing in, in, in warm weather, particularly secondary fermentation and spoiling of that feed, and then also a risk of just limiting total dry matter uh, intake as as cows may fill up on those diets as well. So, um, so I, I I have heard good kind of field reports of those uh, types of diets in Northern Europe. However, I've I've yet to see any really hard proof that they work extremely well and. Um, um, and, and I'd be cautious about kind of applying that uh, uh, concept universally uh, to, to, to the diets that get fed on farms uh, worldwide. Okay, thank you. Uh, th- that sounds very intriguing. I'm wondering if it's something that they also use perhaps down in, there wouldn't be any fermentation once they've added water, correct? Well, they're, they're, well that's the hope, right, is that you're not... Um, uh, causing particular lots of dry forages, you're not you're not going to be uh, hopefully creating much. But if, like as I mentioned, if you've got already fermented feeds that may be prone to spoiling and heating, that's where we may actually cause some issues in, in some situations. Because I'm just thinking, a lot of their milk goes into cheese, and some of those cheese types require that there's no fermented feeds fed. Yeah, and that well, that could be the case. There are places like that as well, right? So where, yeah, um, uh, where we think of, uh, yeah, cheese production areas where they're where it's only based on dry forage. Uh, definitely, there, there's a potential benefit there from a diet intake consistency standpoint in terms of homogenizing that mix and um, and, and and making sure cows can't sort. Uh, dry forages uh, out of the diet, et cetera. Yes. Okay. Um, my next question is, um, there was some, would you want to discuss, have you looked at any of the, any research or done anything in terms of how animals behave by lactation number, sort of the competitiveness of older boss cows versus young cows and how that may affect some of the behavioral studies that you're doing? Uh, yeah, that's that's uh, another good question. Um, I guess we can we can kind of break it down on on a number of fronts. Um, uh, we do know that their behavior is different, um, and particularly when we commingle, say, first lactation primiparous animals with uh, second and greater lactation animals. Um, and, and what we see across studies is that uh, when we have uh, first lactation animals commingled with more mature animals, uh, it's those first lactation animals that um, uh, really lose out from, from a behavioral perspective. A good example of that is over the transition period, we see uh, those, tra- or those first lactation animals um, lying down for less time per day uh, spending less time at the feed bunk. Now, 
they're eating less, so maybe they do need to spend less time, but then, but then that shouldn't translate into them, say, lying down less. And so we see a kind of a greater impact of um, uh, competition, even though they may have adequate stalls and feeding space, et cetera, uh, we still see an impact on their behavior. And, and so it's for those younger animals that we see a benefit of keeping separate groups. And, and again, we see that in uh, most of our larger herds where they're uh, keeping first lactation animals separate from mature animals. And, and the benefit there is really for those first lactation animals. The older animals, their behavior doesn't really change whether or not they're grouped just alone or with the younger animals. It's really those uh, younger animals that benefit from being separated from, from the mature ones. And we see that in some of our feeding behavior studies as well, uh, where those younger animals uh, tend to um, uh, see more variability in, in, in their behavior at the bunk, uh, particularly at, once you add in things like some competition. So competition for feed bunk access if stocking densities are uh, creeping up, say, at the feed bunk. Uh, in those situations, that's where you see uh, those first lactation animals either lose out in terms of not having say, primary access to feed when they want to, or changing their intake pattern where they have more variable feeding patterns, which um, goes back to uh, uh, some of the things that I discussed, that it's something we want to eliminate is, is that variation. We want those cows to be able to eat as consistently, uh, both within day and across days, as, as much as possible. Okay, thank you. Um, the next question is from Kelly Bean, and he says, if you have a low dry matter intake herd, what would be the order of potential causes that you would look at from the most likely to the least likely? Oh, <laughs> um, so yeah, a low intake herd um, from um, most to least. Uh, now, just Thinking off the top of my head, I, I don't know if I can prioritize those that easily. Right. Um, um, first, well, I, I guess there's a, a number of things, and, and again, I, I don't again, I, I don't know if I'm going to prioritize these, but I, I would start looking at um, first and foremost whether or not the the diet that is getting delivered to the cows matches that which we formulate for the cows. Um, and so that can be a rate limiting step. Um, and, and not only, uh, within kind of day, but across days, uh, we have some data that suggests that, um, variability in feeding practices. So day to day variation in terms of what gets delivered to cows, whether that's due to poor mixing protocols, um, uh, variation in say feed, uh, um, components going in, not tracking like forage dry matters well enough, et cetera. Uh, all those things can create variation day to day, which then may be enough to impact uh, the cow's eating behavior, their rumen and, and, and slow down digestion actually and, and, and influence intake. So that's, that's one step. Two is, and, and as I mentioned in the thing, just making sure cows have feed in front of them all the time. Um, it's amazing how often you walk under herds and, uh, at different times of the day, middle of the night, and, and you realize that there's large periods of time where cows just do not have good or adequate access to feed. Um, that would be kind of my, my second or another one. 
um, managing environmental conditions uh, is going to be big as well, uh, particularly in hotter climates and, and summertime, even in more temperate climates, uh, making sure that we maintain uh, enough uh, cooling in the barn uh, to to allow those cows or, 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 or maximize the um, the desire of those cows to get up and, and, and feed across the day. Um, obviously looking at the feed itself, um, uh, quality ingredients obviously goes a long way. Um, uh, forages, uh, again, making sure forage uh, bunkers are managed well so that we're not promoting uh, spoilage or secondary fermentation. And then the same goes with the diet itself, the TMR preparation and delivery, anything that we can do to prevent uh, that and keep that diet as fresh as possible. is going to help uh, promote uh, intake for those cows at, at the same time as well. Good. Um, Paula, unmute whichever Paula you are and um, say hello. Hi. Hello. Hello, Trevor. Hi, Paula. Excellent. Hello. I, I know uh, who I am because it's uh, me. <laughs> but I have three Paula Turiello here. Yes. All right. Um, Paula, do you want to start with some questions? Yes. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, the first question is from Ignacio. Uh, which is the longer particle size you recommend to avoid sorting and have effective fiber? Mm, tough one to start. Good. Um, no, it's it's a very good question, uh, and 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 rightfully so. There, there's um, it. The answer depends on what forage you're dealing with. And and also it's going to depend on the whole ration that it's being fed within. So so what else is um, within that diet? Um, one of the things that we we know is that and, and is that particles do not need to be very long to be uh, physically effective. And um, some of the most recent meta-analysis work. Uh, that's been done looking at the impact of, of uh, forage particle size on stimulating rumination and having a positive effect on the rumen environment would suggest that that minimum kind of size to do that is around in that four millimeter uh, uh, size range, which, which is not very uh, long. Um, and so that what that suggests to us is that we don't need to be uh, 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 too long uh, to um, uh, uh, to to still be effective. Um, the challenge is, or it can be, that if it's too short, um, uh, it's going to uh, potentially increase passage rate too much, and you're not actually going to get uh, as good digestibility of that forage either. Um, so I think uh, our, our traditional recommendations when it comes to uh, say corn silage uh, and cutting say uh, uh, alfalfa grass silages still kind of holds as far as theoretical cut lengths of anywhere from say and I, I'm going to jump between um, imperial and metric measurements here but um, so theoretical cut lengths of, of 
three eighths of an inch to three quarters of an inch uh, for for corn silage, and 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 kind of similarly, uh, half inch to, to three quarters of an inch for uh, for haylage uh, is good as well. Um, where where I think we've learned the most is that uh, particularly with our dry forages, we don't we don't need them. Uh, very long and if we can do a good job in chopping those dry forages down to um, uh, lengths that are uh, anywhere in that um, uh, about one inch or two and a half centimeter to uh, let's say two and a half to three and a half centimeters in length uh, one one and a half inches in length maximum that's where we're still maximal um, uh, uh, benefit from those forages in terms of being hard to sort, um, but also uh, stimulating good rumination and, and, and being uh, digested well in the rumen. Okay, thank you. May, may I go on because I yeah, have a related question? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, this is from Georgina, which is the particle size distribution and dry matter content in the diet you recommend? So uh, again, good question, um, uh, and, and both those. So particle distribution as well as dry matter content. Um, again, I would I would caution and say that my recommendation, as should be anybody's, is going to somewhat depend on what type of diet we're feeding. So what is the forage base of that diet? Um, what are the other components of that diet? Because that's going to have an impact on some of those recommendations. Um, I'll start with the dry matter. Again, uh, most uh, evidence that we have would suggest that if we try to target a diet that's um, approximately 50% dry matter, 50% uh, uh, moisture, uh, that's probably optimal uh, being within say five percentage points of that is is probably pretty good. Um, if we get uh, one of the challenges which I mentioned in the webinar is that when we get too low, particularly with added water, um, uh, or if we got really wet forages and say we're sub forty-five uh, percent on the dry matter, creeping down to forty percent in that range. Uh, that's where we start to run the risk of, of feed starting to heat up and, and secondary fermentation and, and problems associated with that. And then also, particularly, again, if we're adding water, uh, bulk density can increase to the point where we're, we're starting to uh, uh, fill cows uh, too much by those diets. Uh, as far as particle distribution goes, um, uh, again, it depends on what kind of uh, particle separator you're using. Um, uh, there, there's a variety out there. Um, uh, the, the most common is the uh, Penn State uh, particle separator. Um, I would say that one of the things that we have to focus on, particularly with that uh, unit, is that we, we don't have too much um, material sitting on the top screen. And that's where, going back to the previous question, I think we've we've come a long ways uh, from um, a uh, kind of recommendation standpoint where we used to recommend there be 
a fair significant amount of material on that top screen. However, now we know that we don't need a, a whole lot of uh, material on that top screen to uh, be physically effective. Uh, my, my recommendation is, is, is only a couple percent um, on, on that top screen. The majority of our uh, um, uh, material up to about 50% should be on the middle screen. Um, and then, uh, and then I would say a, a fair even split between, uh, that on the, on the lower sieve and bottom pan. Um, if, if you're dealing with a three screen plus a pan, uh, type, uh, separator. Okay. Thank you. Paula will be back with more questions. I have a question that I will ask because it is related to particle size, and then we're going to see if Tom Long would like to ask a question before going back to some questions from Paula. So um, this was a question from Caroline. When discussing the particle length study, you mentioned a mo you mentioned modeled response, and she wondered what does that mean? What data was calculated with a computer model, and which was physically measured? Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. Uh, what I was referring to there is, so in that study, we were looking at the, the response of the cows in the first 28 days of lactation. And so we measured daily their, yeah, their, their, their intake, their production, rumen pH parameters, which I described. And one of the things that we know about the, um, kind of evolution of, say, intake and milk production, over the early part of lactation is that it's not a, it's increasing, but it's not a linear type response. And so what I meant by modeled response is that to, uh, to, to really characterize how that, uh, say the intake of the cows and the milk production and the rumen pH of those cows evolved over the first 28 days of lactation, we, we fit a, um, uh, a, a model, uh, to that data. Uh, a linear model, actually, in this case, a, a non-linear in terms of uh, they actually best fit with what we call a cubic function, which showed that, as you maybe you saw in the data, that uh, for most cows, uh, they they rapidly start to increase a intake in the first bit of uh, first week of lactation, and then it plateaus off a bit, maybe even backs off a little bit, and then starts to again at near the kind of three four week mark starts to take off again, and so even though we, we kind of assume this almost linear increase over that time period, uh, when we looked at it in, in, in the case of that study, we saw a, a quite a, um, uh, a nonlinear uh, increase and, and it fit better with this uh, more polynomial kind of uh, function over, over that time period. And so that's what I meant by the model response. The actual data points that you saw in the webinar were the actual means from those days and, and the lines that I had over those were those fitted kind of modeled responses. Hope that makes sense. Yeah, very good. And if you want, we can go back to that slide if you want to illustrate more thoroughly. But it sounds like you explained it pretty well. Um, so I have a question from Tom Long in China. Um, for dehydrated alfalfa versus naturally dried alfalfa, what are the differences for TMR chopping? Due to the trade war, lot, trade war, lots of Chinese dairy farms are starting to use dehydrated alfalfa from Spain instead of from the U.S. lately. Um, some take a mixed approach. What would you um, have to say about that? 
Um, good question. I, I, I personally, I, I, I'll be careful in that I don't have a ton of experience with um, dehydrated alfalfa um, uh, as opposed to naturally. Um, I've heard that it, it can retain uh, a little bit better structure, actually, than, than naturally dried. There, there's a greater risk with naturally dried uh, in terms of um, uh, 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 loss of structure, particularly a lot of field loss, a lot of leaf loss, etc. And so there's potentially more uh, retainment of that in, in some of the dehydrated alfalfa um, uh, Specifically regarding the the, uh, nutritional content, I I can't comment too much. It's probably going to depend on the source and growing conditions, all that. Um, And then as far as chopping goes, which I think you mentioned, um, again, uh, I don't have any direct experience with uh, chopping uh, dehydrated alfalfa and, and how that compares. But again, if, if, the, if it's done well and, and the, the plant uh, uh, structure is, is well maintained through the drying process, uh, I wouldn't see uh, any, any significant issues with that as long as, again, it, 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 is, uh, it is processed well uh, prior to mixing uh, and, and delivery to the cows. Okay, well, so let's see. Um, I have a follow-up comment that Tom asked, but also I can say from experience just looking at some of the dehydrated alfalfa that they feed in the Parmigiano-Reggiano area that, yes, the texture on that seems to be a little bit flexible and less yeah. leaf shatter, I think. So yeah. I think they get some quite good quality forage using the de- yeah. dehydrators in Italy. All right, Again, um, to do, and to do a good job chopping it, you, you might just need to uh, make sure that, yeah, it, uh, you're using something that has sharp knives, et cetera, just like we would recommend anyways, but probably even a bit more important uh, so that you're not just uh, uh, kind of mixing it up and, and, and not actually breaking the, the, part of, uh, the plant apart very well. Yes. Um, so Tom asks, for adding water, should it be done during the TMR mixing or after? Um, well, I would say it's part of the mixing process. Uh, typically, um, I would suggest adding it at the end of the process. Um, uh, and so um, after mixing, say, dry ingredients or whatever, if, you, if we've got, sorry, uh, dry forages first and then dry ingredients and then adding wet silages and then at the last part adding that water in, uh, to the mix. Um, that being said, well, I guess what I would recommend is making sure that that water gets added um, as evenly possible throughout the uh, the mix as well. And um, uh, I think that um, uh, is, is crucial for yeah, making sure it's it's homogenous and, and goes through. And so a good setup to deliver that water into the mixer wagon. Um, one of the questions I answered this morning, which I'm not sure if you'd come back to, Marianne, was uh, the idea of compact feeding where they actually add water to, say, the uh, the premix or, or to the grain part and, and maybe chop dry forages ahead of time. 
challenge uh, with that is is you, you do run the risk of feed heating up in some scenarios there, and, and so um, uh, I, I would recommend waiting uh, to add water to, to the end of the process there. Okay, yes, thank you. I'm, um, I'm going to turn it over to Paula for some questions, and then if I don't have more questions um, in my window, I will come back around to some of the ones that we asked this morning because I think you gave some good answers to those and I'd like the audience that's listening to benefit. So Paula, go ahead and ask your questions. Okay. Uh, you showed us a graph uh, where feed NDF content changed across the day yes. to show us sorting. And the first two dots were six hours apart. Don't you think feed sorting should be measured with less than six hours in, in a group of cows? I mean, because if one cow is eating for one hour and a half, for example, maybe she leaves and the other cow is coming and eating the another thing. Yeah, the previous slide. <laughs> and that's... This is just for illustration purposes to show um, uh, show how that feed may change. Now, in this case, you don't see much of a difference there, um, and and so we're not actually seeing a lot of sorting uh, at a group level in this case um, uh, until much later in the day. You don't see it changing too much. The the challenge there is that we took these samples at a group level and so you're dealing and these are cows fed once a day and so it's it's very difficult uh, uh, with say once a day feeding to detect sorting in a short period of time especially if you mix up the feed and that's what we were doing to get an accurate or representative sample is we had all the feed in the feed bunk mixed up and then took a sample out of that and so I, I totally agree with you uh, or with the question that the majority of the sorting actually that we see is going to be often in those first few hours after feed delivery. And so, and that's the point I wanted to make here actually, um, is that uh, particularly in the feed that's right at the bunk, uh, that's getting sorted through by those cows with kind of priority or dominant access to the bunk at that time period. And if you were to measure kind of what was given to those cows versus what's kind of left right in front of the bunk three hours later, definitely. Um, and then you've got that pile of feed that's been pushed forward and pushed out of the way. Um, and so that even um, kind of ties into the end of my presentation even more. And that's the importance of that feed push-up. Uh, just because there's some scraps there, it doesn't mean that cows – uh, that's what those cows should be eating. And, and so feed push-up should, in, in this case too, in this uh, on this timeline, if feed gets delivered at 5.30, our next feed push-up should be at least at uh, already a couple hours, say two, uh, maximum three hours after that first feed delivery because that's going to help mitigate the effects of that sorting that you're going to see during that early uh, kind of eating period of the day. Right. Uh, may I go on, Marianne? I have another question. Yes, Paula, why don't you keep going until you um, don't have more questions or until you need a okay. pause? Uh, some professors 
usually recommend uh, to avoid uh, frequent feeding or frequent deliveries because the cow stands more time and she she doesn't she, she changes her lying behavior. What do you think about that? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. Um, we've done, uh, as, as, as I showed, well, I showed results from one study we did looking at frequency of feed delivery. Um, we've done a series of studies over the years looking at the frequency of feed delivery on not only the feeding behavior of cows, but also on, um, uh, other behaviors, so the time budgets of cows, including the standing and lying patterns. And and one of the things that's unique in terms of our research um, uh, or, or that we found is that the, the lying behavior of dairy cows is very static uh, or consistent uh, when it comes to altering the amount of time cows are spending eating in the day. And what I mean by that is that uh, we've done studies where we've got cows to spend 30 minutes, 60 minutes, uh, even more time standing at the feed bunk, and that uh, not having a negative impact on their um, uh, lying time per day. It will affect their uh, pattern of lying behavior, obviously, if we're getting them up more often to the feed bunk. Uh, or if they're stimulated to do so, they're going to be getting up and down a little bit more often. But the total amount of time that they're spending at or, or spending lying down does not necessarily need to change. The only time when we, we can get into trouble is if there's other pressures on those cows' um, uh, time, say, that they need to spend standing. Like if we've got cows that are spending too much time in holding pens waiting to be milked. Um, and so rules of thumb there is we'd, we'd ideally not like cows standing any more than 45 to minutes to an hour per milking um, because the more time that they spend standing and actively, say, in a holding pen, the greater that's going to cut into, say, their lying time. Same thing goes with stocking density. If we've got an overcrowded pen, that's when we start to see those decreases in lying behavior, as well as things related to the comfort of the stall itself. Long story short, um, I'm not worried about uh, getting cows to spend a half hour or even an hour more at the feed bunk per day. They've got lots of time, kind of lots of idle standing time in the pen per day that they can use that time towards and, and still maintain the same amount of uh, good lying duration. The only time we've ever seen actually a correlation between feeding management and lying duration is that one study I showed you, and we have one other one very similarly, where we've showed that, say, poor feed access, like in the case where we're not pushing up feed enough, um, may have a negative impact on, um, on, on lying time. And that's, again, because in that situation, as I described, when we don't say have feed available enough and cows have to spend more time standing waiting for feed or searching for feed that may then cut into their uh, lying duration per day. Great. Another question. Could you make some recommendations 
uh, of the day schedule about feeding deliveries during summertime, considering we, we usually ha have the cows in dry lots, not under a roof. So, um, question is, recommendation for feeding schedules in the summertime um, uh, for cows that are in dry lots? Yes. Um, the time of feed deliveries. Yeah, I, again, um, I would, uh, my recommendation there would be to uh, time those uh, in relation to other management events. So depending on when cows are being milked in the day, and so it depends, again, if cows are being milked twice a day or three times a day, um, and then, and then, uh, and then base it on the decision of when we're going to be, um, uh, uh <clears throat> or, or sorry, how often the feed is going to be delivered. Um, uh, just as an example, uh, if we're going to be, uh, milking cows twice a day and feeding twice a day, I would actually, as I mentioned, try to stagger those, uh, feed deliveries away from those milking times. Um, uh, even middle of the day, middle of the night, um, uh, while maintaining good feed access when they do come back from milking. And so that's one of the things that we need to just make sure there's enough feed and it's pushed up when they do come back from milking that they're stimulated to stand and, and keep on their feet. Um, I would, I'd, I'd like to see, uh, if we're going to do multiple deliveries, feed both in the daytime and uh, in the nighttime, if we're only feeding once a day, which is very common, uh, I would I would still like to see that delivery sometime in the daytime, even in hot climates. Um, there's there's research to suggest that that's better to do that than to say feed the cows only at nighttime, because um, one of the challenges that we have with that, and there's some actually some uh, data from Canadian colleagues uh, that have looked at that, looking at say shifting feed delivery in the summertime in the hotter or hot time of the year to uh, the evening, what happens is that cows then don't engage in a lot of feeding activity during the day. They get really hungry, and by the time their feed gets delivered at night, they're super hungry, and they're going to have a very large meal. And I think they showed that cows would eat like 40% of their uh, daily dry matter in, in, in just a couple hours after feed delivery uh, in the evening. And so that slug feeding response is obviously something we want to avoid. And then, and then what happens is then they have that big meal, they have that bout of acidosis, uh, rumen slows down, uh, they're a little less quick to return to eating. And then by the time they're hungry again, it's morning, they may eat more. And then as the day goes on and it gets hot, that feed is old, it's starting to heat up and the cows are really unmotivated to access feed uh during the day and so again long story short avoid if you're only doing once a day feeding avoid delivering feed at night in in those hot climates hotter times i'd rather see it earlier in the day um and then ideally again uh you're you're feeding multiple times uh, and trying to spread that out as much as possible throughout the uh, uh throughout a 24-hour period Okay, Paula, do you, you have more questions? Yes, two more. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Uh, this is from Pedro. 
The highest dry matter intakes you found in your studies are because the cows ate more time or more frequently. And is this a genetic characteristic we could use to select cows in the future? Um, very good question. Um, so in, in the data that I showed, the, the highest intake cows were both doing both of what uh, uh, Pedro asked, and that's uh, spending a lot of time at the bunk and also spreading out that intake as much as possible. Um, those cows also tend to have, because they are eating more, a little bit larger meals and eating a little bit faster than, say, their uh, counterparts. But the, the, the primary thing that, as I mentioned, was associated with that high intake was how much time they were spending at the bunk and how often they were coming. And so those are very important for that. As far as the, uh, the heritability of those things and, and, and the ability to, uh, say, breed for those things, that's very interesting. There, there's a, I, I know of a variety of groups that are working on that right now, so I don't have uh, a direct answer for that. Um, however, I do know of some, there's some, uh, there's a paper that's currently in press with the Journal of Dairy Science, which I just saw that was looking at some of these similar things and showing that actually some of the most efficient cows, um, also have those kind of eating patterns. Um, and, and so, uh, and, and, and so we know feed efficiency is something that we can, uh, um, breed for as well, or we have some potential there. And so maybe linking the behavior as well as the efficiency of cows, uh, we can, to, we can select cows, uh, on, on those basis, uh, uh, in the future as well. Great. Very interesting. Uh, the last one is from Carlos. Do you have any experience using rice hulls as a fiber source? So uh question is about rice hulls as a fiber source. Um, personally, I don't actually. We don't feed uh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, rice hulls here in Canada just based on uh, there's very little rice production, so uh, uh, probably more expensive type um, uh of, 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 of ingredient for us to source. That being said, um, I think there is a, a, a fair amount of evidence to suggest that um, they they are potentially uh, uh, useful as a as a fiber source, kind of like a low nutritive um, uh, substance, like we would use a lot of uh, cereal straw. Uh, here in Canada, uh, as we have a fair amount of, as, as byproducts, uh, you could use rice hulls quite similarly uh, for, for that same purpose to uh, stimulate rumination, provide that kind of physical effective fiber to the animal. Okay. Thank, thank you very much. I have uh, no more questions. Okay, you. Paula. I think, I think um, probably we can go ahead and let Trevor go. So that if you don't have any more questions, I'm sure he has things to do. Okay, this was great, Trevor. Thank you very much. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity once again, and thank you for the questions. Um, 
uh, happy to uh, be able to do this. And uh, uh, my email address was on the screen as well. And, and so if people uh, um, have my email address, I'm, I'm always happy to uh, answer any questions that way as well. Okay. And Trevor, do you have any difficulties if we send this out as a PDF? Uh, of the uh, PowerPoint? Yes. Uh, no, that's fine. Yeah. Okay. Because um, we always get questions and I might as well ask. So yeah, well, um, yeah. if it's PDF, that's fine. Yeah. Yes, I will. All right. Well, thank you everybody for joining us. Um, be sure to join us next time. Remember the time will be changed slightly for anybody that's not in the U.S. or in the U.S. It's very confusing. Um, and Trevor, thank you so much for joining us. It was a great talk. Thank you this morning also for joining. Paula, thank you. Tom, again, it's always good when you join us. So thank you, everyone. And with, if I don't have any more questions, I'll go ahead and say goodbye for everyone. Thank you. Bye. Great. Thanks, Marianne. Have a great thank night. Thank you. Bye.